right, good morning. Let me encourage you to go ahead and find your seats. Welcome to those who are joining us online this morning. We are glad that you are here today. As we were praying for you just a few moments ago, we certainly are asking God to just allow our hearts to become focused upon Him, to be able to set aside the cares of this world, the schedules, the busyness, the anxieties, whatever it is that you maybe woke up with this morning, to be able to set that aside and just be overwhelmed by the grace and the goodness and the majesty of our great God. Let me just uh, encourage, uh, welcome our visitors with us this morning as I was going around meeting people. We do have some visitors here with us for the first time. We're glad that you're here and trust that you receive a warm welcome and sense the presence of the Lord among us this day. If you would take your bulletins, just a few announcements to bring to your attention. On the back of your bulletin, you will see that there is a calendar of events over the next few months that kind of transition us back into a full calendar of events if all goes well as we hope and plan in the month of August. And so please make note of those various things and plan to be uh, here as you are able to do so. Also, just uh, there's a note on our financial report. If you're a person who looks at that, uh, you'll notice that uh, we had uh, allocated something in one spot and now have reallocated it, and so you'll notice that on there. Next Sunday morning, um, don't come to church hungry necessarily, but uh, make sure you don't leave here without some food. We have a, our student ministries doing a fundraiser for uh, Hope Closets. You can read all that in your bulletin. Uh, please make plans to join for that, and we look forward to that time. Uh, there's a charity golf event with HFA on the 30th, and so if you'd like to be a part of that, you need to make sure you take care of that soon. Uh, you can check with Aaron Flanagan on that. The nursery reopening is next Sunday morning. Uh, we're looking forward to that, not to get the kids out of here, but to give you parents an option. Uh, we appreciate you and being able to deal with all of the COVID and no nursery and children's ministry over these uh, several months. And so we look forward to that. If you would like to help in the nursery, you can see Rachel Dispinette. We continue to need volunteers for that. Also, we're going to be doing our church softball. We were off a season last year. I shouldn't say we, the church. I'm not personally involved with it. Uh, but uh, Andrew Dockery and Ty McClanahan are kind of heading up the team this year. If you'd like to be a part of that, you can see one of those fellows after the service this morning. Let's take just a moment and orient our minds, as I mentioned, as we open up the service this morning, asking God to draw us to himself as we come to the scriptures in just a moment. So please take a moment and prepare your heart. you to stand as we 
look to the Word of God to call our hearts into His presence. Psalm 24 is a psalm that, to me personally, captures my imagination and something that I can see. I can just see Israel singing this as they would come into the city, maybe bringing the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the coronation of a king. Listen to these words. They are magnificent, and let them lead your heart into his presence. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now listen to these words. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. continue along the path of the Heidelberg Catechism, 
is exciting to my own soul to see these things, the theme of redemption evolve as we work through this catechism. And once again today, we're going to do three questions today, and so you answer at the appropriate place, but let your heart follow the truth that the writers of the catechism are trying to instruct our hearts. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? This payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will punish any other creature for being guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath. Father, as we think through this catechism, as we recognize the hopelessness in our humanity to ever gain your righteousness, Father, we are grateful for where this is leading us. It is leading us to Christ. It is leading us to the great hope that we have in him and him alone. Father, as we recognize these things, as this weight sets upon our soul, Oh God, how grateful, how thankful we are for who you are and for your love and your grace for which you have poured out upon us. I pray, Father, that these things would stir us, would stir us to worship, would stir us to praise, would also stir our hearts to be quick to share the gospel with others, to give forth the truth that Jesus Christ is the only way that Jesus Christ and through him and him alone is our entrance into your presence. And so, God, we are grateful for these things. I trust in the service to follow that we might be able to give you the praise and the worship and the honor and the glory that is due your name. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Before us lie the one who washed away. 
Strange deeds. 
attention of our hearts to the reading of God's holy word. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet the Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arraigned like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble reading from the letter to the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's stand and sing together. Yeah. 
Thank you, Sean and worship team, for leading us this morning. Thank you, church family, for engaging, worshiping together. Normally, during this particular part of our gathering, I would be reading the sermon text, but this morning we're going to put before you a number of specific requests, asking you as our church family to pray for these individuals, these families. I want to start in our community. I'm going to move into our church family, and then we're going to talk about some global partners likewise. Uh, First of all, you have seen the news these past few days. A young man here on the west side, 18 years old, uh, K.J. Taylor, was uh, murdered here on the west side of Charleston. This This is our community. This is where the Lord providentially has planted Randolph Street Baptist Church. And this morning, we want to take time to pray for K.J.'s family, his friends, um, neighbors, to pray for those who so deeply loved him, to pray for his classmates, and uh, just to ask God to bring justice into this situation. Secondly, this is a prayer request for you older Randolph Streeters. I won't identify you. But Peter Parkinson passed away this past weekend. Peter had a deep connection to this local church for many, many years. Uh, He started a ministry we all know, at least many of us are familiar with, called Caring for Life. Uh, Brian Vickers texted me, I believe it was yesterday morning, to share that news with me. This is a man whose life was giving to not only to, to preaching the gospel. I mean, Peter served in an area called Leeds of the UK, just north of London, He gave his life to the preaching the gospel, but he also fed those who were hungry. He clothed those who were naked. He stepped into the lives of the least of these. This is a man who has left a legacy of God's grace. And so we want to pray for caring for life this morning. We want to pray for his family as they walk through this time. I've shared that news with a number of you older Randolph Streeters this morning, the ones I could get to. And everyone I've said that to, all of you just have that stunned look on your face. You, you love this man and the ministry that he had even among you here at Randolph Street. Thirdly, this is connected to us, Don Ashmus, who we deeply love as a brother in Christ here at Randolph Street. He has been walking through some very difficult days. Hospice is now engaged in caring for Don. Uh, they love Randolph Street. You love them, Don and Ann. Uh, They are dear, dear friends of this ministry. They went to our church plant in the valley, Risen King. They live down there. They've been such a phenomenal ministry uh, to uh, Risen King. The family is asking no phone calls at this time. Uh, These are difficult and trying moments for the family. Uh, But please pray for Anne, pray for their children, pray for all of those, pray for Risen King uh, as they walk through these hours with Don and Ann. Um, two global prayer requests to put before you this morning. One, just to pray, continue praying for the Millers. It seems like yesterday we stood up here and set them apart and commissioned them for their work in West Africa. And here they are uh, almost two weeks there. 
uh, they're continuing in their quarantine period. They joined us last Sunday morning, uh, our Easter gathering. They may be joining us uh, today, but uh, they were so encouraged. They miss you guys. Uh, they thank you for your prayers. They finish up their quarantine this week. They begin transitioning into the various components that God has called them to there. Number one, securing a place to live. So pray for them as you think of them in the coming weeks. And then I received an email this past week from our partner in East Asia that we support here, um, serving incredibly effective ministry in East Asia under very tense situations. He emailed this past week asking our church to pray for them. So I've passed this along to you to pray for. Uh, there's a new law in this particular major East Asia city targeting churches in this particular district. Monetary compensation is now being giving, given to neighbors who will report on church meetings. And the penalty is uh, monetary fines, closure of all churches that are reported, reported. He asked us to pray in four specific ways for them. One, pray that they'll have wisdom in how to organize their church into different locations so that they can continue to meet. Number two, pray for the faith of their members in the midst of this persecution, that God would continue to embolden them for the cause of Christ. Number three, and this is a unique one, pray that they will continue to trust God as they continue with current church discipline cases. These people whom church who are under church discipline may report to them to the authorities. That's a whole nother level. Pray for boldness as leaders there carry out faithful biblical ministry in the midst of this. And number four, pray that they can continue with all their upcoming training. He is engaged along with several partner churches of training pastors throughout East Asia, and they want to make sure that training continues. So that's our brother and sister they're serving in this east east asia city and we want to pray for them this morning so let's pray together for these five individuals and families well father as we gather this morning here in safety and security comfort we recognize that there are those around us who this morning are hurting and struggling and suffering. So Lord, we lift them up before you. You have planted us here on the west side of Charleston and this community has suffered a significant loss in this young man. So Father, we pray for this community. We pray especially for his family, his parents, his classmates, his friends, his neighbors, those who have been affected by this tragedy. Lord, we ask that through all of this, that the gospel would be clear in their lives to those ministering to this family and to these classmates and friends. God, that you would help them to be faithful in this time as they share Christ, that you would bring comfort that can only come from you, our God. Give us wisdom as a church as we seek to serve and minister to this community. I pray for law enforcement that you would grant them wisdom to bring forth justice in this situation. Father, Lord, we lift up to you this morning Peter Parkinson's family and church family and ministry family there at Caring for Life.
Lord, this is a man who gave his life for your cause. And we rejoice in that, Father. Such an evidence of your grace as he preached Christ, fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited those who were in prison, stepped into the lives of those who were deeply, deeply suffering. This is a man who gave his life there, Father, and we thank you for this life. We pray for his family, his wife, his children, for caring for life this day, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen them and bless them as they move forward. Father, we pray for our brother Don today. So grateful for this man. So many ways he exemplifies Christ to us through his humility and kindness and gentle spirit. That's Don Ashmus, by your grace. As he walks into these days and these hours with his sweet wife, Lord, would you bring comfort to their hearts? May their hope be grounded in Christ. Thank you for his many years of serving this church, the lives that he has affected. So, Lord, bless our brother, I pray. For Keith and Kristen in West Africa this morning, Lord, we miss them. We thank you for them. Lord, would you, in these initial days, bring much fruit for their labors. May doors open for the gospel. Lord, may opportunities be presented that would enable them to ex extend the glory of Christ right there and to neighboring nations. Lord, give them much fruit in these days. And we pray for our brother and our sister in East Asia under intense persecution and difficult times. Lord, that you would minister to my brother and my sister, that you would encourage this church, help them to keep their faith strong, grant them wisdom as they think about gathering and following your commands and shepherding the church through difficult situations of church discipline. Lord, help them as they continue to seek to train and equip brothers to serve churches throughout East Asia. Father, may these, these days of hardship be fruitful, fruitful days for your glory. Oh God, sustain them, encourage them, preserve them as they walk through these days. We are grateful we have partners like this family and the Millers. Lord, extend the gospel through their lives. We pray that now in Jesus' name, amen.
brother for serving us this morning. If you'll take your Bibles and open with me to Philippians chapter 3 this morning, we return to our study of this epistle written by the Apostle Paul to this church. He so deeply loved this church. He so deeply knew and had rich relationships with. And this morning, we now turn to chapter 3. After a few weeks in our Easter Holy Week series, I trust that short three-week series was helpful to you and you're thinking about that significant week of the Lord Jesus, his last week of his earthly life and ministry prior to the cross. That was helpful to me and uh, trust was encouraging likewise to your soul. Philippians chapter 3, with your Bibles open, pens, papers in hand, however you approach the word, let us now hear the word of the Lord together. We'll be reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Paul the Apostle writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word on this Lord's day. So here we step into what is a significant text in this particular epistle. We're going to take two weeks to walk through this passage. My goal today is to get through the first nine verses, and then we're going to come back next Sunday. I'm going to pick up one additional thought that's kind of maybe controversial from the first nine verses, and then we're going to focus on verses 10 and 11 next Sunday morning. So when you're reading literature, especially the Bible, and even a book like Philippians, there are many thought processes running through the author's mind. Philippians is no different there. There are dozens and dozens, if you will, 
of thoughts or any writer would have as they approach a, a letter or an epistle in this kind of sense, especially when you have such strong connections to the people you are writing to. You, you may have connected passions, right? Th- things you're observing in their lives, concerns that maybe may have been brought to your mind. And, and now as you pen a letter to these particular individuals, there, there are parts of that letter that are going to kind of apex your argument, if you will. If, things you want them to remember. You're going to be careful when you write these things because you want to make sure every word is communicating this important truth that you want to set into their hearts, into their minds. When you read the Bible, there are many texts. And then there are the text that capture an argument. There are moments in letters like this where writers like Paul, they want you to kind of stop and slow down and settle in for a moment. There's other passages you just read through, and and the point of the author is not to slow you down. There's other passages, though, they want you to slow down, settle into the truth, and let that truth affect you. And I believe that is one of those passages that is before us this morning. Paul wants you to gaze up on this language. He wants this truth to frame your life. It's that important. All right? I'm not saying that just because I'm preaching this text or it's the text we're on. This is one of those moments in an epistle where you need to slow it down, see what the author is leading you into, and then ask the Spirit of God to frame your whole life by this kind of truth. I have often said from this pulpit that the most important question that you will ever consider in your life is this question. How can I, as a sinner, stand right before the holy God? I mean, that's the pressing question that falls upon all humanity. How can I, as the sinner, stand right before the holy God. There are places in the scriptures where Paul is going to answer this with clarity. That question will be answered with full clarity in this particular text. Here's your outline for this morning, if you're taking notes. It's four points. It's not that long of a sermon, so don't don't get overwhelmed. Number one, verses one through three, we're going to see a strong warning and a clear contrast. So Paul's going to move into this text with an incredibly strong warning and a clear contrast. Number two, we're going to see a little self-reflection from Paul, verses four through six. Number three, we're going to see the confession of a circumcised heart, verses seven and eight. And finally, number four, verse number nine, we're going to come back and answer the question that I just posed before you. How can the sinner stand right before this holy God? Verse number nine. So in these few short verses, 11 verses, Paul is going to lay out for us the whole of our salvation. 
from beginning to end in this packed little section, we're going to see justification and sanctification and glorification. It's kind of the whole, if you will, of salvation summarized in three theological, biblical categories. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. In 11 verses, Paul is going to trace us now through the whole of our experience of grace from God in Christ. That's why this is such a full passage, if you will. Paul is going to show us in this passage kind of two types of righteousness. One that comes from the law and one that comes from faith in Christ. So let's step into this text, if you will. Let's see the strong warning that begins with, along with this contrast. Verse, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, again, My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is of no trouble to me and safe for you. This kind of feels like a little bit of a false start for Paul. You ever watch track and field, maybe the Olympics? In that dramatic moment, right before the, maybe the 100 meter for the gold. And there they are, all crouched in their starting positions. They're waiting for that starter to fire off that gun. And you, you always, almost always see this one, one runner or two runners, just they, they, the anticipation building the takeoff and the gun hasn't sounded. It's a false start. And you get that sense in this particular passage because Paul says here, finally, my brothers, Rejoice in the Lord. It feels like he's going to catch on a theme now, and he's going to move us to the end of his writing to this particular church. But what we see is Paul's nowhere near the end. Paul comes here to this moment, and out of everything he has written in the first two chapters, and I know that's been a month or so ago that we were there, everything he's written in these first two chapters, he comes to this moment, he begins to launch toward the end, and he writes, Rejoice in the Lord. He's going to come back to this theme in Philippians chapter 4. He's going to pick it back up when he's going to say in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This, this theme that many commentators will identify is the very theme of this particular epistle. So what it feels like to the reader that maybe Paul's got a, a little bit of a false start going on, right? He's, he's going to move to the end and then he kind of backs up. I don't think that's what happens here. He's calling you as the Christian to rejoice in the Lord. And now these, verse, these 11 verses, he's going to give you multiple reasons why your heart as a Christian should rejoice in the Lord. If you remember from previous weeks, Paul has spoken into a church that is suffering. I mean, this is a church that's facing the realities of living in a fallen world. This is a church that's facing opposition. This is a church who has walked through difficult days. Not only that, but Paul, if you remember this, Paul calls this church to hard realities. You remember how we labored to show you that working out your own salvation means pursuing Christ-likeness. And pursuing Christ-likeness means that the aim of our life is humility and servanthood. 
So you take those two realities, you're walking through difficulties, you're being persecuted, you're suffering, and then, and then Paul's over here and he's, he's chirping in your ears, right? Hey, pursue Christ, be humble, be a servant. Those, those are hard realities. And so Paul comes to this moment out of those truths and he tells them, hey, rejoice in the Lord in all of that, in your sufferings, in your difficulties, in your pursuing Christ with humility and being a servant in the midst of all of that, Paul is calling these people, be happy in God. It's a good reminder not to spend much time on this, but sometimes we grit and grind our teeth to be humble and serve. And what Paul wants to lay over us in the midst of that, hey, Rejoice. Be happy in God. He's called you to this. He will sustain you. He will strengthen you. The one who began the work in you will complete that work in you. So be happy in God. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, I think Paul understands that's going to be hard for you. It's hard for me. It's hard for all of us. That's why verses 1 through 11, this isn't Paul starting with a false start and then coming back to it in Philippians 4. This is Paul saying, hey, I want you to rejoice in the Lord, and now I'm going to give you some really good reasons your heart should be happy in God. I'm going to give you some really, really good reasons. Look at the warning in verse 2. I'm talking about a, a transition. Rejoice in the Lord to look out for dogs. This is a strong contrast to what Tim preached a few weeks ago. Remember at the end of chapter 2, there was this sense in Paul just rejoicing in his partnership in the gospel. That that was the Millers last Sunday with us, and it was such an appropriate text as we sent them out. Paul reflects on his partners in the gospel, and now he moves from that fond reflection of partnership in the gospel to this stark warning. He warns these Philippian believers of those who stand in opposition to their partnership in the gospel. At no point in this letter does Paul sugarcoat the Christian life. These are difficult days. This church, they're facing hardships. As a matter of fact, two times Paul is going to call them in this particular short letter, you stand firm in the faith. It's difficult days. It's hard days. Paul is calling them in light of this opposition, you stand firm in the Lord. Who are these dogs, if you will? Well, I think Paul uses this term to speak of those who were teaching in such a way that drew hearts away from Christ. This term dogs is usually a term used by Jews to refer to unbelieving pagan Gentiles. It's a term of derision, right? They are unclean. They're unbelieving. They're not a part of the covenant. They are unfaithful. They cannot approach God. And now Paul's going to turn the tables And he's going to lodge toward this group of false teachers that they are dogs. And he he continues it. Notice in verse number two, they are evildoers. They stand in opposition to God. 
They were distorting the gospel. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. They're distorting the gospel. As a matter of fact, if you let your eyes linger all the way down to verse number 18 of chapter 3, these individuals are enemies of the cross. It can't get any clearer at that point. Now the question is, how are they distorting the gospel? These dogs or evildoers or enemies of the cross? Well, I think that's answered for us at the end of verse number 2. Notice he identifies those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul is probably indicating here Judaizers. Those who demanded that Gentile Christians be circumcised and follow religious customs so that, and this is back to my first part of my sermon, so that they would have a right standing before this holy God. Let me repeat that. Those who mutilate the flesh are those who press up on these Gentile Christians that they must be circumcised and follow religious customs in order to stand right before this holy God. That's why Paul in verse number 18 says, these are enemies of the cross. You remember in Galatians, Paul's warning to really this same group of individuals, same type of false teachers. I mean, it's strong language. Paul, Paul gives no quarters to those who might step in and draw us away from the grace that God has shown to us in Christ and Christ alone. Pa Paul would not leave anything out here. These individuals who now are forcing these Gentile Christians to think that Religious customs, circumcision would make them acceptable to God. Paul looks up on them and says, these are enemies of the cross. Look at the contrast in verse number three. Paul says, we are the circumcision who worship God by the spirit of God, who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is like the ultimate contrast now. Paul identifies himself and those in the Philippian church who loved Christ, he identifies themselves as those of the true circumcision. Matter of fact, matter of fact your translation may even include that idea, true circumcision. What's this mean? Well, Paul is not speaking of those circumcised by knife in the flesh. Here Paul is speaking of those whose hearts have been circumcised by the Spirit. Those who have spiritually circumcised hearts. And now because of that, they worship the true God by the Spirit. And then if you look down at verse number three, this monumental phrase, they glory in Christ. This is what the circumcised heart does. It glories in Christ and puts no confidence in the flesh. So, so Paul's going to contrast these two groups now. These evil workers, those who are pressing in on the church and saying, hey, you've got to be circumcised, Gentiles. If you want to stand right before God, you have to have your flesh circumcised and follow these religious customs. In doing that, they're, they're pulling away from Christ. And Paul steps into that, and he says to, the, to his readers, we are the true circumcision. This is Jew and Gentile. 
Why? Our hearts have been circumcised by the Spirit, and now we worship God. And, and notice the result of all this. They glory in Christ. They're not pulled away from Jesus. They glory in Christ. And then, I don't know if you write in your Bible, but I, if you do, let me encourage you right now. Underline, put no confidence in the flesh. Good, I see a lot of you writing your Bible. Or you're drawing pictures, I'm not sure. That little phrase becomes important for us as we continue to move through this particular section. All right, let's look at verse 4 and following. This is Paul's self-reflection. Really, this is Saul, not Paul, in verses 4 through 6. We're going to see a list here, a list of seven things. Either received or achieved status that in Paul's unconverted mind, he thought made him acceptable to God. Look at verse 4. Though I myself have, no, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And here he goes, seven reasons. He was circumcised on the eighth day. It's no mistake that he leads with that particular reality. According to the law, Paul adhered to, or at least his parents adhered to, this commandment, this law of God, that he would be circumcised as a male child in Israel on the eighth day. He notes that he's of the people of Israel. Paul was Jewish in his ethnic identity. He had pure and undefiled roots. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He, he's going to get specific now here. It's, it's not just that he's an Israelite. Paul's going to narrow this down now, this small but significant tribe in Israel. Paul, Paul identifies himself from within the tribe of Benjamin. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. I think Paul's point here is he, he adhered to all Jewish customs. He, Paul loved being a Jew, an Israelite. The, the, the festivals and the customs that were put forth by Moses in the law, Paul fully embraced them. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Number five, he is as to the law, he's a Pharisee. One writer summarizes this aspect of Paul's life. He says he was a son of a Pharisee. We learned that in Acts chapter 23, verse 6. As a matter of fact, the language indicates there that Paul was probably not only the son of a Pharisee, but he was the grandson of a Pharisee likewise. This writer continues, he was educated under the great Pharisee teacher, Gamaliel. I'm not saying that right. Uh, well, I shouldn't even trot it. Acts chapter 5. He continues, this was not a label of reproach for Paul, saying that he was as to the law of Pharisee, but it was a label of pride. He is saying that he was fully committed to the complete obedience of the law to the law of Moses. I mean, when Paul writes here, as to the law, he's a Pharisee. That's not a title of reproach. Paul is saying in this, he was trained, he was raised up within the law, and he sought with his whole heart to obey the law. That's Paul, or Saul. Number six, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. We know this testimony in the book of Acts. Paul opposed the people of Christ. 
He opposed the movement of the gospel. Acts chapter 8, verse number 3 says Paul was, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Paul, in his own self-reflection in Galatians chapter 1, will write, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous, zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. I mean, this is Paul. And he, he viewed as a young man, Saul, the advancement of the gospel is undermining his Jewish tradition. So what did he do? He persecuted. He stood opposed to the advancement of the gospel. He ravaged the church. He stood against the gospel. Number seven, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul served God with a clear conscience. In this little phrase, Paul is not saying a man can stand righteous before God under the law. That would go against all of his teachings. But he is simply saying that if anyone had reason to boast in the flesh, it is Paul. Look at verse number seven. This is the confession of the circumcised heart. This is the confession of Paul, the convert. He writes, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So all of these achievements of Paul, these privileges and accomplishes, the accomplishments that he had set before his readers, he now understands in light of the work of the Spirit of God in him, these things, they are a loss. I mean, go back and just look at the language he uses. Verse 7, whatever gain I had in all of these ways, I counted as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. Verse 8, I count everything as loss. Why? For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He suffered the loss of all things. And notes this, he counts them all as rubbish or trash or human, human excrement. Why? So that he may gain Christ. He was on that road to Damascus in that dramatic moment where Paul stood face to face with the resurrected, glorified Christ where he realized that all he had done, all that he was, was insufficient before this holy God. It was on that road to Christ that Paul realized that everything was about Christ. And he stood naked before the Lord. I mean, this is the testimony of a circumcised heart. Paul looks at all of his reflections. He, he looks at all of his achievements, things he gained by status, things he pursued in honesty before the Lord, and he sees all of those things as a loss. Why? so that he might gain Christ. Now, I said this was a fairly short day for us. Let's move to verse number nine. This is kind of the heart of the passage. 
Why is Paul so adamant in this text that he desired to gain Christ? What, what is the advantage of gaining Christ? And that answers our question. How can the sinner stand right before the holy God? Well, look at verse number 9. In order that I may gain Christ, and then this little phrase, and be found in him. This is the place of faith now. Paul is being moved away by faith from his own achievements, and he's being moved to Christ. And notice this next little phrase, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. This is what happens to the awakened heart. They're found in Christ, this, this cherished place of faith, and they come before God not having a righteousness that comes from the law. In other words, this moment, it takes away from us our own attainments and our own performances. And we recognize that all of that before this holy God is insufficient. And not just insufficient, but it is damning to the soul. By faith, as Paul notes here, we are united to Christ. And what comes through that union with Christ is righteousness from God. This is, this is crucial to us as Christians to understand this truth. By faith, not by our achievements, not by our traditions, not by our heritage or our lineage or by our birth, it is by faith a person is united to Christ. By physical birth, I am in Adam. By spiritual birth, I am in Christ. By physical birth, I am unrighteous in Adam. But by spiritual birth, and this is the teaching of verse number 9, I am righteous in Christ. So Paul's teaching here, brings us back to that crucial question. How can a sinner stand right before the holy God? Well, the answer that Paul gives in verse number nine, by being found in Christ, by being united to Christ. John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, it is a book that all of our deacons and elders, excuse me, all of our elders are required to read in their training and examination process. It's a, it's a small read, so helpful for us to understand kind of the fullness of what God has accomplished for us in Christ. Murray is an excellent writer. On this particular subject, on this doctrine of the union with Christ, he writes, this is the central truth to the whole doctrine of salvation. This idea here of what Paul's speaking of in verse number 9, that we are now united to Christ, we are found in him. He writes, this is not simply a phrase in the application of redemption. This phrase underlines every aspect of our redemption. By faith, we are now united to Christ. And because we are united to Christ, God looks at us, the sinner, as righteous. How can a man or a woman stand right before this holy God? It is through faith and faith alone, in Christ and Christ alone, God looks up on the sinner and declares him or her righteous. 
Spurgeon would write, the anger of God toward believers in Jesus is forever appeased. They are perfect in him. I mean, this is, this is what Paul's going after here. To be found in Christ, Spurgeon writes, they are perfect in him. In Christ, they are righteous, and he sees no spot of sin in them. This is the result of being in Christ. We are righteous. A righteousness that is not our own. It is alien. You'll read that in theology books, this alien righteousness. It is outside of us. It is not from us. It is a gift of God's free grace to those who place their faith in Christ. And that is good news for the weary sinner. This is what Paul's going after in this text. This is what's so crucial to us to understand his line of reasoning and argument. It's not something we attain. It's not something we can cultivate or conform to or inherit. This standing before God, this righteousness that God requires only comes through faith in Christ as the sinner is united to Christ. Brothers and sisters, there's no sweeter language for you in this weary world than to be found in him. This is the heart of the gospel. Paul, in this moment of self-reflection, looks into the mirror, and he accounts his resume, his achievements, his heritage, his attainments. And in all of that, Paul, the one who had reason more than anyone to have confidence in the flesh, in all of that, back to verse number three, Paul says to us, put no confidence in your flesh. In this moment of self-reflection, Paul understands the only way a sinner can stand right before this holy God is by faith. And those who place their faith in Jesus, they are united to Christ. This is a reason, back to verse number one, Paul is saying to you, the sinner, rejoice in the Lord. Be happy in God. Why? Because you're united to Christ and you are now righteous. I remember when we were preaching through the book of Romans and we just got our start. This feels like forever ago. But we came to that famous verse 16 of chapter 1. Paul is speaking about the power of the gospel, and then he says to us in verse 16 and 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Next Sunday, we're going to come back, and we're going to walk through what faith is, and we're going to ask a question, is faith a work? We need to wrestle with that a little bit. But in Romans, Paul begins this incredible theological exposition by making that clear statement. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I think what he means there is not only what God possesses, but what God gives. God is righteous. 
But in the gospel, God gives righteousness. The just, they shall live by faith. But it was that next verse that caught us, verse number 18, where it speaks of God and his wrath being against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And it is there that Paul begins this train of thought to demonstrate to every reader in that moment, you're all unrighteous, all of you. None of you are righteous. No, not one of you. And this massive dilemma is created. How can I, as the sinner, stand right before this holy God? Philippians 3 cannot be clear. Through faith, we are united to Christ, and when God looks up on our lives now, what he sees is the righteousness of Christ. Not us, okay? Christian, let's, let's work hard on this because we need to glory in Christ, verse number three. That's why that little verse was so important to this. We want to glory in Christ. The truly circumcised heart glories in Christ. We have no confidence in our flesh. This is not attained by us. It is a gift of God. But the one who believes, they are united to Christ, and God now looks up on them, and he sees not us and our sins, but the righteousness of Christ. Spurgeon, again, would say, there is no joy in this world like union with Jesus. And then he writes this, and this is the fight of our hearts. The more we feel it, the happier we are. I mean, he, he wants to dig you into this text in verse number 9 and, un, and help you understand what it means to be found in Christ. You are now united to him, Christian. God looks up on you as his, as his son or his daughter, and that should make you happy in God. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11, especially verses 1 through 9. Paul forms for us the very fundamental idea of our hope that in Christ we as sinners are declared righteous. So Randolph Street, for all of you sitting here this morning, for those of you joining us online, that's you. Right now, is your hope in Christ? Is that where your faith rests? I know it may not feel like it, what I'm getting ready to say, but guess what? Right now, in the eyes of the holy creator of all things, you sat here this morning, and you are righteous. In his eyes, the eternal creator and judge of the universe, right now, you sat here, and you are righteous. Not because of you or your achievements, but because of Christ and what he's accomplished on your behalf. That is truth that stabilizes the weary soul, strengthens the exhausted spirit, it undergirds the faint-hearted, it stirs us in our pursuit of holiness, it invigorates us in our fight against sin, it causes our hearts, our circumcised hearts, to worship. That's why when we sing songs about the righteousness of Christ, I can hear your voices and your volume get louder because you know your hope is not found from within you. You know your hope is found only in Christ. 
Edward Mote, 1834, wrote these words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. And then he tells us why he yearned for that. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground, all other ground of human achievement or lineage, all other ground is sinking sand. Edward Moe captures the very heart of the Apostle Paul here for these Christians as he sought to protect the purity of the gospel. It is not through our achievements we stand before God righteous. It's only through Christ. Brothers and sisters, protect that in yourself. Protect that truth. Sitting here right now in this room, where is your hope? If your hope is in Christ, then you sat here this morning not as a sinner. You sat here this morning righteous before this holy God. That is a reason to rejoice in the Lord. Let us pray together. Oh, Father, as we begin our entry into this significant text given by Paul under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. I would pray today, Father, that this would not be a preaching to the choir type sermon, but that each of us would hear these words of the inspired writer. We would all ask ourselves that fundamental basic question, where is my hope? Who is my hope? And Father, if there would be any among us here online who have rested their confidence in achievements of the flesh, God, would you in this moment circumcise their hearts and help them this day to put no confidence in the flesh but through faith to lay hold of Christ and be found in him. For my brothers and sisters here and that have placed their hope in Christ, who cling to him, Father, would you bring these gospel truths to their hearts and minds now and in the days before them, May their confidence rest in Christ. May they understand this morning that they are righteous in Christ. And out of that, may they glory in the Lord Jesus and have no confidence in their flesh. 
Lord, these are basic gospel truths, and we want to be a faithful church that not only understands these truths, but proclaims these truths and lets these truths settle into our hearts so that we might glory in you, our God, the God of free and sovereign grace. Thank you, Lord, for this text. Strengthen us, encourage us. If there would be any unbelievers present here or online, Lord, would you use the words of Paul to call their hearts to Christ this morning? I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you would.
Hallelujah. What what glorious truth we've been able to see this morning. Pastor Jason, thank you for that clear explanation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our benediction today, again, as it does so often, captures truth in a way to send our souls rejoicing in the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And God's people say, Amen and Hallelujah.